All right. Our Old Testament lesson this morning is uh, Psalm 95. Psalm 95, verses 1 through 11, which can be found on page 933 in your pew Bibles. And if you have uh, paid attention to our calls of worship over the years, this should sound pretty familiar. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and God, we thank you for, uh, for your word that you've given to us. Lord, we ask that you would help us this morning as we hear your word read and proclaimed. Help us to hear it and to understand it and to be ready to receive it. God, that as your word uh, becomes planted in our hearts, that it would grow to bear much fruit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, when your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And turning to our New Testament lesson, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, which can be found on page 1744 in your pew Bibles. is the beginning, uh, near the beginning, of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. He writes, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
This morning as we begin, uh, before we get to our sermon text, I do have a question for you, which just is, how do you generally see people? There is a... Uh, There's a famous study from years ago. I've referred to it before. It has to do with language and colors. Familiar with this one? It was where they went and they tested people in, uh, of different languages. They just gave them paint samples, those little chips you get at the hardware store. And they gave them all these, uh, yeah, paint samples of all different colors. And they just said, sort these into piles. And they did. And what was interesting really interesting, is that depending on what language they spoke, they actually sorted them into different numbers of piles. Well, what does that mean? And it was basically, if you had a word, for example, if you have the word for pink, then when you get that lighter shade of red, you start sorting it into a pink pile. If you don't have a word for pink, that's still just red. And so it just goes in the red pile. And so that's what they discovered, is that actually the way that we use language affects how we see the world around us, even in the way that we sort colors. (laughs) I think it's pretty interesting. But the question, though, is not how do we see color, how do we sort color, but the question is really how do we see people, and how do we sort people? Um, This week we're going to be looking at a passage in John that comes right on the heels of the one right before it. That's how that works. Uh, but the one right before it is really important to understand before you get to this one. The one right before it is when Jesus is sitting down with a Samaritan woman at a well, and they have a conversation. We talked about this last week, and there's sort of this uh, dance going on between the two of them as uh, she continues to try to get the, uh, the attention onto anything besides what's going on in her own heart. And Jesus just doesn't give her much wiggle room for that dance. <laughs> but just keeps coming back to what's going on in her heart. And this is happening at a time when uh, it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Interesting. And uh, his disciples have gone into town to buy food, and so he's just alone with this woman as well, and they have this one-on-one conversation. Uh, This is the context. This is what has just happened. And at the very end of... uh, of that conversation, she had said, you know, when the Messiah comes, he's, he'll come and he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus said, I am the, the one speaking to you. And has uh, made a pretty big claim that this is who he is. So that is where we left off last week. This is where we pick it up uh, this week. And we're going to look at how the disciples see people, how Jesus sees people, um, well, how we see people and what that means going forward. Okay, here we go. This is John chapter 4, starting in verse 27. It says, Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, What do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And his disciples said to each other, 
could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus this saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. All right. So this is, like I say, the follow-up to the conversation that Jesus just had with this woman. And one of the things that we talked about last week is that this woman was all of the wrong things to be at that day and age, and particularly if you are... um, if you are one of the faithful Jewish uh, remnant there in, in the land, the Samaritans were, um, well, nobody liked the Samaritans. They had been the, the moral compromisers, the theological compromisers. They were the ones that the Assyrians had sent in after they had removed the Israelites uh, hundreds of years before. And when they came back in, or when they sent these people in, whoever was left kind of ended up intermarrying with them, and they'd come from all these other places where they had all these other gods, and so they kind of, well, we'll still worship those other gods, but okay, you've got one here too, so we'll, yeah, we'll kind of worship him too. And so you have this mix of uh, trying to worship the one true God alongside all these other idols. And so the people who are in Israel are looking at the Samaritans and going, no, you guys have missed it at every turn and we don't want anything to do with you. Makes sense. And so you've got Galilee in the north. You've got Judea in the south. Jesus spends a lot of time kind of both of those places. And uh, a lot of people spend a lot of time in both of those places. And what they would do is Samaria was right in between. And so they would go around. So they didn't have to go through Samaria. It took longer to go around, obviously. Uh, that's just basic geometry. But... For them, it was so important that they not uh, be contaminated by the Samaritans, that they not get involved with the Samaritans in any way, that they would go out of their way, and it would take days longer as a trip just to avoid contact with Samaritans. So when in uh, John chapter 4, verse 4, says about Jesus, now he had to go through Samaria well, what does that mean? That he had to go through Samaria. (laughs) And you have to wonder, is this talking about geographically, like that was the only road open at the time? Eh, Probably not. Is that he has to get there really soon so he can't take the long way? No, because we see he actually ends up staying extra days in Samaria. So why is it that he has to go to to Samaria? I suspect he has to go through Samaria because there are Samaritans there who need Jesus. 
Now, this is a very different way of viewing Samaria than everybody else around him did. <laughs> and so he's, he ends up meeting this woman at the well, and he has this conversation, and he keeps getting, going back to her issues of a heart. And, uh, and when his disciples come back, after this whole conversation, the disciples come back, and it says that they were surprised to find her talking with a woman. But no one asked about it. So what is it that the disciples see when they see this encounter? They don't see someone who needs Jesus, right? They see a, they see a woman, probably a Samaritan woman. And there's another side of it where we saw last week she's had five husbands, and now the man she's living with is not her husband. And so there's this whole, if you read through the whole Testament, there are a lot of warnings of you know, staying away from the adulterous woman good reason for that. And yet, that's not what Jesus sees either. Everybody else may have seen it that way. That's probably why she was out there by herself instead of going with everybody else and going at the normal time of the day. Probably everybody else has her pegged (laughs) as someone you ought to stay away from. And yet, um, that's not what Jesus sees. He sees her uh, as talks in a parable later of, uh, you know, if you have a hundred sheep and one of them goes off, you leave the 99, you go after the one. Is that what everybody does? That's what Jesus does. She is the lost sheep and he's going after her. That's what he sees. as someone who needs to be rescued. And he is the Savior. That's what he does. And so, he, uh, so he's had this conversation with her. The disciples don't get it. It's so encouraging to read through the Gospels, by the way, and just see how often the disciples don't get it. <laughs> that give us hope. They don't get it. So uh, they see this, and then <laughs> she's, he's talking with her. They don't get that. Um, and then after she leaves, we'll get back to that in a second, when, they, when she leaves, the disciples say to him, Uh, hey, you should eat something. You know, that's why they went into town was to buy food. So they come back, they've got food, you you should eat. And he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And they don't get that either. Like, well, somebody brought him food? Is that what's going on here? Is is she the local Uber Eats? Was that, anyway. (laughs) Everyone from not here is like, I get that. Um, Anyway, uh, because someone had brought him food, and he says, yeah, you still don't get it. <laughs> There's no, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me, right? This, this is an idea that goes back a long way, and it's one that you know that Jesus is familiar with, because uh, if you remember at his baptism, right after that, he goes out into the wilderness, and he's tempted, right? And when the tempter comes and says, turn the stones into bread, after he's not been eating for 40 days, turn the stones into bread, and what is it Jesus says? He, yeah, he quotes Deuteronomy. It says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right? So in other words, there is a different way of viewing what it means to be sustained in life. And he says there is a physical way of being sustained, but there is a spiritual way of being sustained. And he says uh, that you know, he, 
You can go without food for a while. You can't go without that relationship with God. You just can't operate that way. And so when you have this relationship with God that is ongoing, uh, that is something that really, truly, deeply sustains and fulfills you. And so he says, right now, I don't need the bread. (laughs) Right now, I just had this conversation with this woman who was lost, and now she's found, and I love that. (laughs) They don't get it. It's all right. We don't get it either. But he goes through, and he explains explains all this, and he talks about this harvest, the sowing and the reaping and the harvest. And again, he's talking, you know, about bread, where that bread comes from. But he's not really, is he? He's talking in a spiritual sense and using this as an object lesson for them. And he's talking about this particular woman and not just this particular woman, but now all those who are going to be uh, saved through her testimony. So let's go back and let's go see what it is uh, that happens with her. We see that uh, the disciples come back and they're surprised. They don't say anything, but their faces probably do. She gets up and leaves for whatever reason. She gets up and she leaves. And interestingly, she leaves her water jar there. You notice that? This is then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and starts talking to people. Now, why is it that she went to the well? To get water. <laughs> so it's kind of weird that she goes back without the jar. Like, that's what she came for. But she goes, uh, the other thing is, Think about the conversation she had with Jesus. You know, he's going back to the issues of her heart. What was the, uh, the object lesson he was using with her? Water, right? And it was about the living water. And so now that she has met him, it's almost like she is doing exactly the same thing that he is doing when he says to the disciples, you know, I, I can pass on the bread right now because I got something better. And she's almost saying, I can pass on the water for right now because I got something better. Like, I have an idea now of this living water he was talking about. And so I can I'll deal with that later. Right now, I got something better, and I got to go tell people about it. So she does. She goes back into town, and she starts telling people. Uh, and her, her testimony to them is, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Come on. The everything she ever did is probably the stuff she doesn't want to talk about. Right? In fact, when Jesus brings it up with her, we look at this last week, uh, he just says, go call your husband and come back. She doesn't tell the whole story. She just says, I have no husband. Just leave it at that. (laughs) But then he's the one who tells her story. (laughs) But he tells it in such a way that she knows she's not rejected. That he knows everything that she's ever done. And still, he's initiated this conversation with her. And still, he's offering her the gift of living water. And so now when she goes back, instead of the shame and the guilt associated with everything she's ever done, she goes back with joy and is able to be open about it all because, you know what? 
I don't care what you all say about that anymore. (laughs) He still loves me. And that's enough. And so she goes back and she's like, I want you to know this too. He's the one who told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Messiah? And I don't know if it was the tone of her voice or how, you know, what it, it, the words that she said, or if she actually used more words than these, and this is just how John uh, abbreviates the whole thing for us. But whatever, for whatever reason, people listen to her. They listen to what it is that she's saying, and they start coming out to see. Well, who is this guy? And you, you got to think. If he's the one who can tell you everything you've ever done, and you know some of the things you've done. You you may want to go more like Nicodemus in the middle of the night. Let's do this just (laughs) one-on-one. Unless you're out there with everybody and he starts calling you out. Uh And yet, that seems like a risk they're willing to take. If this could be the Messiah, then who cares about all that stuff? Let's go find him. Let's go find out. And so they go out. And so here's, here's what's going on. There's two two scenes happening kind of at once. You have Jesus talking with his disciples, and you have the Samaritan woman talking to the other Samaritans. So these are the two scenes that John is kind of bouncing back and forth between. And and so we've seen Jesus talking to the disciples and saying, you don't don't get it about my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And, And then he starts talking about the harvest and everything. He says, open your eyes. Now, when they are looking out, what is it that they're seeing? As this conversation ensues, they're seeing all the people from Samaria who she has just gone and she's talked to them and they've said, all right, let's go see. And so now here they all are coming. And Jesus, you can almost imagine him gesturing to the crowds as they come and say, open your eyes to his disciples. Open your eyes. What is this? Word for word here. Um, he says, I, don't you have a saying? It's still four months till harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Is he talking about the grain? He's talking about the people. He's saying, here we have a whole group of people who need a Savior. And let me tell you, I don't think the disciples would argue that point. I don't think, I think Jewish people then would say, yeah, y'all need Jesus, right? <laughs> That's what they would say about the Samaritans, but they would say it from a distance. Y'all need Jesus. Good luck with that. And what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 no. I have called you to participate in the work of the harvest. And there are others who have gone before you. One of the reasons that this, uh, that the disciples are now going to get to participate in this work is because Jesus has already talked to this woman. Well, how is it that they were already ready to receive when the woman goes and talks to them? It's like somebody's been at work in these people's lives. And how exactly that happens, we don't know. But somebody's been at work in their lives, and Jesus says, so somebody's done that work. Now here we get to participate in the harvest, and we're going to celebrate in that joy. Don't think it's all because of you, (laughs) but you get to participate in that, and we get to rejoice all together that this is what God is doing. And so, uh, verse 38, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And then, of course, uh, that final section, 
Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. This is what I was talking about earlier. He didn't have to get to Galilee really soon or he wouldn't be staying two days in Samaria. But think about this. Others were willing to spend an extra couple days to go around and avoid the Samaritans. Jesus spends an extra couple days with the Samaritans. And it's because of this, because of his words, uh, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. In Isaiah, there's a verse 49, 6. It says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that uh, my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. This has always been the plan. If you go back to Genesis 12, this is what God says to Abraham, is that it's through you that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And somehow that focus kept getting narrowed. And so people would think, no, 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 this is how God was going to save me and my people. And God consistently through the whole Bible is saying, I'm saving you so that you now can be called to be a part of what I'm doing to save the whole world. Not just you, not just your people. And how, now we see this again. We see Jesus gets this, right? The disciples do not get this. It's not at this point. They will. But interestingly, the Samaritans get it. The Samaritans get it, that they now see that, uh, and not just because of what the woman said, but now we've heard for ourselves, and, they say, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So, John tells us why he's written this particular book, and we've talked about this before, and if you go to the end of the book, just says it pretty plainly. But I think it's important to keep it in mind. Ah. This is the end of chapter 20. After he's told all these things, John says, John, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I think when he talks about you may have life in his name, that's for everybody who's reading this book. That's why this is written, is that we would hear this, that we would know who Jesus is, that we would have life in his name. But one of the things that we see over and over again is it doesn't end there. That one of the things it means to have life in his name is to be sharing Jesus with others. To be called into that work of letting others know the good news. When the Samaritan woman gets a taste of that living water, that's the first thing she does. Goes and tells everybody else. And, uh, and when Jesus then calls his disciples to take part in this ministry, that's what he says. Come, follow me, right? 
and I will make you happy? No, that wasn't it. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You know how it goes. That this is the call of discipleship, is not just to, uh, to eat the bread of life, not just to drink the living water, but that those things would sustain us in our work as we share with others. We started this whole thing today asking how we see people, how we sort paint chips, how we may sort people into various groups. And I would invite us this morning to, um, to rethink the way we do that. That we would see less like the disciples when they were surprised to see Jesus talking with a woman. We would see more like Jesus as he talks with this woman and as he sees the crowds coming. That more and more we would see people as people. People who have been created in the image of God. Loved by him. Known by him better than they know themselves. And yet, those who have turned away and just like us need Jesus, need rescue, need a savior. Because if this is the way we see people, then instead of y'all need Jesus, kind of from a distance and in some sort of disparaging way, it's the more personal do need Jesus. You need Jesus like I need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus because he is the Savior of the world. And this is how the good news spreads. And it's how the good news transforms individual lives one at a time so that the harvest is complete and the whole world uh, has the opportunity to come to know the Savior of the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.